Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. I'm very excited to be here today to speak to Charlie Mayfield, Chairman of John Lewis Partnership, partly because the future Mrs. Islam was very excited about the delivery of her shoes yesterday in, in 24 hours. And of course the wedding list, which no right-minded person probably here would do without uh, John Lewis' wedding list. Um, and also, a few people know this, and it might be a, a, a lesson for some PR professionals, which is one way to get the press on side is to, is to be nice and give them information. And in the run-up to Christmas, the only organisation that gives you basically weekly running total of how um, under the cosh or how exuberant the British consumer is, is indeed the John Lewis Partnership, which is why they get fabulous oodles of PR, because, and we appear in your stalls. Uh, interfering with the Santa's Grotto because you're generous enough with your information. So that you maybe didn't know, I thought I'd pass that on, but plenty to talk about from, um, and I'm going to sort of kick off with two or three questions about the model in general, about of course something that people are very concerned about at the moment, which is the state of the UK consumer and a couple of other things. But then of course, let's try and make this interactive. We've got about half an hour, though I'm wary that I'm, we, we are in between you and your lunch. So let's, let's kick in with, um, um, some, let's talk about the, the issue of the moment, which is the British consumer, UK consumer. You, you mentioned that things were, were, were softening generally uh, maybe about three weeks ago, but since then we've had a series of quite serious um, profits warnings, and I, I think Philip Green mentioned uh, that the UK consumer had fallen off a cliff, I don't know which cliff, uh, about, about five or six weeks ago. Some people blaming austerity, uh, VAT, and all that sort of stuff. Have you noticed anything, any interesting dynamics in your consumer uh, consumers? Any cliffs that they're heading for, jumped um, off? Well, there's certainly been a slowdown, no, no question about that. Um, what, um, what I would sort of point to, though, is you, I think you have to go back a few years. And, I, and somebody was commenting on this uh, the other day, and I sort of agree with it, which is that in a way, I don't think we've had the consumer recession. Uh, you know, in 2008, we certainly had a recession in the financial services sector, and that knocked on quite heavily into manufacturing and anybody who relied on getting access to finance or credit. But actually, the consumer, most consumers, were largely insulated uh, by the effects of quantitative easing uh, and also some of the measures the government took, like reducing VAT, for example, uh, all of which had the effect of putting money in people's pockets. Um, a lot of those effects are reversing now, and so you're seeing both you know, a return of, sort of, 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 uh, of, of lower confidence because people are now concerned about job security, particularly with some of the, uh, uh, the measures being taken, uh, and you're also seeing declines in disposable income. So inevitably, you're seeing a bit more of a squeeze on retail uh, right now. That's what you would probably expect. It's what we were expecting, uh, and it's happening. I, I would, though, say I, I don't think it's fallen off a cliff. Um, I think, yes, in some areas, sales have slowed down since January, but you can't ignore things like simple calendar effects, like Easter was, you know, was last weekend last year, and this year it's in three weekends' time, and it does have quite a big bearing on people's shopping behaviour. Uh, and retail is a sort of fickle, fickle crowd. You know, we sort of look at the figures every hour almost, so people can react almost too much to the information. Um, and my feeling is, yes, trade has slowed down. I do think this is going to be a slow year, 
Uh, it's not going to be a buoyant one by any means, but I don't subscribe to the view that it's going to be a complete disaster. Uh, and my feeling is that probably come sort of May, June, July, as some of the sources of, of, um, uh, of concern uh, around job security either are realised or, or go, uh, and indeed as we get through some of the calendar effects, um, you know, we'll see uh, perhaps a slight stabilising of the position. So put us in your seat at the top of John Lewis's expensive skyscraper. You're stroking a cat in, a white cat in one hand, and you have all the, da- all the data. Because we know that this nice guy image isn't, isn't all that. You've got all this data, all this data coming in, and you're con- you know, controlling the middle, the middle class's spending habits with a joystick. And you, and you see, and you see coming, coming, coming into John Lewis Towers, you see what change, you know, when, this, when, you see, when do you spot the squeeze? Do people start buying, I'm going to insult someone here, you know, Toshiba tellies instead of Sony tellies? Or give us some insight into what it looks like. And you think we've got, I mean, we've got two big businesses. You've got Waitrose and John Lewis. And actually, at the moment, what we're seeing is um, Waitrose, has conti- uh, uh, sales growth has continued at pretty much the same level as we were seeing pre-Christmas. So we've seen really, actually, very little impact from the lower consumer confidence that's been around the last couple of months. Um, and so that's carried on. Um, and John Lewis um, has, it always sees a greater effect, and we've seen a, a slower rate of sales growth there. I mean, it's slowed, it slowed down markedly from what were very buoyant levels pre-Christmas. Um, and you always see a variation. I mean, you'll, you'll see big ticket items will generally be more sensitive to consumer confidence. Fashion will be less so. And the John Lewis business is roughly a third fashion, a third home, and a third um, electricals. Um, so you, you, you get a mix, but you've, in, in Simple terms, food, okay, um, fashion, pretty good, um, uh, home, okay, larger electricals, a, a bit slower. And some of the, the innovations that retailers have come up with, I mean, let's just take food, for example. I'm not pretending that I'm familiar with this, but say lazy people and ready meals, okay. Do, they, uh, do, they, um, do, do, do people start cooking, cooking for themselves a lot? Um, I mean, how does it change? Yeah. Yeah. Um, do some of the convenience luxuries that that you've introduced to the market, have they started to suffer a little yeah, bit? I mean, or? You get, uh, you, there's always this old adage that when, the, when things are tight, people stop eating out and they start eating, eating in, and then you can sell more ready meals and that kind of thing. And there's probably an element of truth in that. It's damn hard to really spot it, much as I love the idea of having a white cat and a, a joystick. Um, I, I think what it comes down to much more is there are certain times when consumers are particularly concerned about things like value, and they are very concerned about value right now. And something that both John Lewis and Waitrose have put a lot of effort into in the last um, year, 18 months, is really trying to get across that value message. So in Waitrose, we launched Essentials, which was just being very clear about the sort of the entry-level tier, the Tesco price match, and in, uh, in John Lewis, the 11 owned undersold has also been really reinforced and extended online. And all of those things actually just give people more confidence that they can shop, you know, knowing that they're getting good value. And that's what people need at the moment. And so I noticed your discount, I mean, people seem to be discounting right now, not just in food, and some major proportion of all sales now seems to be some sort of discount. I mean, how does that impact the model this year? Do you just take that as a a natural hit at a time of consumer slowness? I mean, how how does um, so you're seeing, I mean, you, you are seeing some trends. So in, in the grocery sector, uh, the level of discounting is up to about 40-odd percent, uh, whereas probably a year ago it might have been about 25 or something. So, you know, so it's one of the ways that the grocers have reacted to this situation is to do more promotions. Um, 
and, um, and, and that will have an effect. I mean, it, there's always, what effect it has on the retailers is, um, is hard to tell because you never quite know who's paying for what. And of course, you don't know, you know, someone, if, if you're, the whole idea of a promotion is you sell more and then you get a better cash margin as a consequence. And so your numbers look all right, even though your percentages have come down a bit. Um, we, we managed to do that quite successfully last year. Um, you know, it'll be more challenging this year. OK, so I'm just I'm decided on some radicalism, which is let's have some questions, if you want to, or just on this part, on consumer, confidence, retailing. We'll talk about the mutual stuff and some other things later. But whilst it's fresh in our head, uh, um, we, yes, we've got two, I think. So should we just take, take them three? Let's take all three of them. I'm a recovering politician. Uh, I, thought you had, I thought you had eat as well in your mix. You, you haven't bought that? I thought you had bought that. There was rumours. Uh, OK, forget that. What about overseas? So if, if the domestic market is contracting, are you thinking of India, China or whatever? Hi, my name is Narendra Mukherjee. I'm from a social enterprise uh, agency in Tottenham. And uh, my question to you is uh, your model of mutual ownership. Well, I just wanted to know if it has any relevance to a poor working class area that's multicultural like Tottenham. Let's take the two retail. So, um, so first of all, on the internet, yeah, absolutely. So one of the biggest things that's happening at the moment in, in, in the retail sector is people are changing the way they shop. And I think one of the things that people can uh, look at too much is the, is the sales you make online. And what you ignore when you do that is actually the change in behavior. I, I bet every single person in this room has got a mobile phone, and probably a good proportion of them are smartphones, and you can use them for all sorts of things rather than just talking to people on the phone or picking up messages or texting. Uh, and I think the retailers that are you know, furthest ahead in, in trying to serve those changing needs and changing behaviors are in a better position uh, to do well. And certainly in our business, you know, our internet business in John Lewis, We've been at it now for 10 years. You know, it's, I think last week it grew by over 25%. Um, if the first seven years it grew by 70% every single year. And we are, we're now taking more than half a, half a billion pounds online. Um, but that's almost not the point. The point is that it's actually how people shop across the entire range. And what we sell in the shops is increasingly driven by how people can interact with us online as well. I mean, does it great with you that people will obviously come in the shop, experience the John Lewis famous service and then go and buy it more cheaply on the internet? Um, I mean, if they, yes, if they do that. But I think my sense is that we're gaining an awful lot more than we're losing uh, from that behaviour. And, you know, in, in some senses, I'm delighted. Thank goodness your wife's shoes arrived as quickly as they did. But, <laughs> but, you know, but what's happening is increasingly people are thinking not about sort of, they're thinking about service in, in, in the round. And, it's, you know, and, and the fact you can shop with somebody online doesn't mean to say you necessarily trust them or you're going to get it delivered or you're going to, you know, there are a lot of other factors. And, um, you know, and increasingly, well, we, we're just learning, we are learning all the time about how we can really serve those customers' needs in a better and better and better way. Um, and you know, those are very important in people's minds when they choose where they're going to shop. Even if they just go and get advice, they're not necessarily going to go to somewhere they've never heard of to buy the product just because it might be slightly cheaper. Although we're never knowing the undersold, it probably isn't. Mr. White's point about uh, foreign expansion, China yeah. and India. So, um, so on, the, on, the, on that front, uh, it, it's going to become increasingly important. We, we frankly have focused and continue to focus on the UK. And the reason for that is that both John Lewis and Waitrose are still relatively underpenetrated. So what I mean by that is, is that roughly, roughly half of our target customers still don't have a John Lewis or a Waitrose shop near, near enough to them to shop in it frequently. And while the internet provides 
part of the answer. It is not the all. And we see where we open new shops, we do much better online in the catchment, as well as obviously taking the sales there. So, so it, our priority is UK. Having said that, I do think that international is going to become increasingly important, um, and we are already taking some steps to sort of some early steps to get there, get into that. We will be opening our website, uh, John Lewis Online, uh, for international sales um, this year, um, and um, quite extensively, uh, which will give us a, a, an initial feel. I don't think that's the necessarily enough. But we've, we've got an export business with Waitrose already, which is quite well established, small, you know, nice business. But we'll need to go further, and we will. Um, I think the just haven't got time to sort of go into the detail of it. But I think a lot of retailers fall into the sort of trap of retail imperialism. They think that you know if you take a John Lewis or a Waitrose shop and you just plonk it into you know Delhi or Mumbai, it'll somehow succeed. Actually, you know you're failing the very first test of marketing, which is you look first at what your customers are wanting. And actually, if you do that, you probably fail. Um, you're assuming that people there want what they get here, and they almost certainly don't. And I think some of the Worst examples of retailers going online, uh, going overseas, are, are like that. Some of the best, actually, I would say, you know, maybe it's not not uh, widely felt this way in terms of the results don't necessarily show it. But I think what Tesco have done in in the in the states actually, to my mind, looks very interesting because they've started from the customer and built it up. Now it's costing them a lot of money and it's taking a long time, but I suspect they will ultimately succeed and succeed better than they would have done had they tried to sort of plonk down one of their, their existing operations. Okay, Charlie, let's talk a little bit about yourself personally. Mm -hmm. no, um, um, so you used to um, work at SmithKline. You were, you were marketing manager, brand manager for LucasAid. I was, yes. Um, so just from a personal perspective, tell us the difference between working for one of the world's biggest multinationals and then working for famously a mutual uh, cooperative organisation, um, which is employer-owned John Lewis. Well, um, <laughs> Compare it to the army as well. That yeah. would be interesting. <laughs> Could we turn the army into well, a mutual? Well, uh, I'm trying to think how I can connect all those things because because on the, on the, in the army I was a very very young, very very inexperienced young officer, and it was <laughs> different. And at, at Smithcline Beecham, I was um, a sort of gung ho, quite um, enthusiastic marketing manager, and loved it. Um, I think if I was going to draw some threads, though, I think there would be two that I would draw out of it. One is one is people, um, and that organisations by their definite, the nature are effectively collections of people. And certainly um, when um, I was in the army, given a lot of responsibility well before I was probably ready to take it, but also given a lot of support, you basically learnt about people. Um, at Smith, Klein, Beecham, there was that component too, but there my role was all about marketing, which was a sort of you know, laser focus on the customer uh, in incredible detail about how you persuade a 16-year-old usually a guy, to choose LucasAid, not Coke, um, and all the various different subtleties and things you would do to try and encourage that. And I, and I found that fascinating. I think you within... Were responsible for John Barnes? No, I wasn't. No, I was just after that. Um, okay. So I can't claim, can't claim <laughs> that one. I, uh, I, did, I did terminate Linford Christie's contract because we'd done that bit and we needed to move on to something else. But that, that's another story. Um, the, um, the, uh, um, what would you do with Wayne Rooney? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I would. Uh, I think. I think we'll leave Sir Alex to look after him. <laughs> okay. But my son was very pleased he scored a goal last night. So very there good. we are. Um, but but so I, I think there's those two threads. I think in retail, you know, I, 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 I this wasn't. I didn't have a grand plan, but you know, I, I do think retail is is all about customers. It's all about people, and um, it's 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 a fascinating business to be in. Um, and in the partnership, 
you know, we have a particular focus on our people. I mean, you know, we're owned by the people who work in the business. Um, I'm accountable to them, and they hold me to account in various different ways through, you know, quite formally and you know, in quite, quite um, openly. Do they come and tell you off uh, more than you would have done when you were the marketing chief at uh, oh, LucasAid? Yeah. yeah, definitely. So well, there wasn't, there weren't, well, there wasn't really a mechanism. So I mean, if, when I was a marketing manager at LucasAid, you know, the, the, basically my boss might tell me off if I got something wrong. Uh, I might get a grumble from someone who worked for me or from someone in the factory or if we'd done something and messed something up. But it would be a grumble, you know, but essentially the, 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 you know, the, the performance management was sort of top down. In our business, in, in the partnership, um, you know, we, I, I am accountable to our partners. And actually, I mean, it's a bit glib, but yeah, I work for them. They don't work for me. So they own the business. They employ the management to run the business on their behalf, and they, keep, they hold the management to account. What that means in practice is, for example, a couple of weeks ago, we had a meeting of what we call the partnership council. There are 70 elected members of that council, and there's about 70, uh, 76,000 partners, so roughly one for every 1,000 partners. They're elected by all those partners, and they come to a, uh, a room bigger than this one, but it's about sort of 70 or 100 people in it. Um, and then I'm, I have a Q&A session with them, which is filmed and then transmitted around the partnership for about three hours, and they can ask me anything they want about any aspect of our performance. And we, we give a lot of information to that group before we have the meeting about how we've performed, what, what went well, what didn't go well, why didn't it. And so it's a very public, very, you know, yeah, anything can come up from pay to um, you know, how we've managed change to whether you know, we're really doing enough on the environment or, you know, you name it, it could be. So, I mean, on pay, does that structure, I would guess, means that the dispersion between top and bottom is, is far flatter than, uh, than you'd get in a private, your private sector equivalents? Um, it's, so, it's, it, is, it is flatter, but we pay people well, and so senior people in the partnership get paid very well. Mm. Um, and again, our, our founder, when he um, set up the business, he, he established a, this, this principle of having a multiple. So he wanted to have a limit, on up, on, an upper limit on, on the most senior person's, pay, most highly rewarded person's pay. Mm. And he connected that to um, roughly to the average non-management partner or employee. Um, but he set the bar high. I mean, what's quite interesting, we had, to, we had to revise this a little while ago because when he did it, he said it was the equivalent, you know, it was, it was X times the, the pay of a married man living in London with four and a half children and a dog or something. You know, it was just a bizarre, quite why, I'm not sure, never quite understood. So we've, we've, we've revised it so that it's sort of a more modern definition. But, but actually, we, when we did that, we actually reduced the, the, the upper limit a little bit. But we still, I get paid well. You know, I get paid very well, and we pay our senior people very well. And it's important that we can because we need good leadership. Our model alone is no guarantee of our success. Um, but we do try to avoid perhaps some of the more extreme levels of personal reward that I think can become divisive in, in, in some situations. So just to clarify for everybody, the, the, you announced the bonus for all partners yeah. very recently. It was 18% yeah. of your income. Yeah, so I mean, the way that, that works is, I mean, we have, a, we have pay, and I'm, I, I was talking about pay, actually. Yeah. Um, we don't have any individual bonuses, so we have no individual bonus plans at all. Uh, we have a, a single bonus, which is the partnership bonus. 
and on and essentially what that is is much more like a dividend so the, the board decides each year how much money we can afford to distribute to partners we work out what that number is we calculate what that number is as a percentage of the total pay bill and then everybody from the chairman to the person who's most recently joined waitrose gets the same percentage and of course that's a very different absolute amount of money but it is very transparent and it also really reinforces this notion of uh, collective reward for collective effort, which is you know, very important to the partnership. And so despite your absolute success over the recent tough months in terms of sales, people, your competitors in the purely private, non-employee-owned uh, retail space will point to the fact that their margins, your margins are about 5 ish percent, mm-hmm. their margins are maybe 9, 12, 13 in, in, in fast, fast fashion, um, and so they'll say, well, there you go, you know, you're very nice and everything, but we make more profit. Um, so, first of all, we don't, we don't set out to maximise profit. So we explicitly have a goal to make sufficient profit. And, and if, actually what we talk about is having a, a balance between partners, customers and profit. And that's what we're always trying to, to create. And actually, if we tried to maximise profit, we wouldn't be able to achieve a balance on customer and on partner. In terms of performance, though, we establish what sufficient profit looks like by actually doing some rigorous benchmarking to our competitors. Mm-hmm. And so the simplest one is Waitrose actually is the second most profitable supermarket in the land in percentage terms. So it's second only to Tesco in terms of percentage profitability. We made about 5.5% last year. Uh, Tesco would be about, about 6%, um, and the others are all below that. Uh, in John Lewis, it's, it, there's, there's a difficulty with comparison because if you compare us against Comet or Curry's, mm-hmm. you know, actually our profitability looks hugely high mm-hmm. because we have in our mix fashion and home. And they all have different variables. If you compare our profitability to someone like Next, it looks lower, mm-hmm. but that's partly because Next is all own brand and actually it's all in fashion, which generally speaking has a higher margin. Um, so it is swings and roundabouts, but you basically, I mean, it, as a rough guide, um, you know, John Lewis is more profitable than House of Fraser, uh, less profitable in ten percentage terms than M and S, um, but it's sort of, you know, it's 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 very much sort of middle of the middle to upper in the pack. Okay, well, let's get some questions on on that. Uh, if I remember correctly, it was, does the mutual model can it be transferred to social enterprises in more deprived areas? Hi, my name is Abigail Morris. Um, I'm interested in the tensions that it, um, around you being a mutual organisation and in the market. And given the growth in the internet shopping, mm. I'm interested in, in Waitrose's decision to outsource to Ocado. Mm. And that tension, particularly now as Ocado is producing its own, own brand shopping, it's certainly muddling, I think, for the consumer as to mm. where that is. And I don't know whether you, I mean, I don't know whether you were any part of that decision or whether there's a regret that that was outsourced. Um, and just to talk a bit about how that worked sure. and the, the, the tension, the dynamic between that mutuality and, and the profit, the, the shareholding bit of, of Ocado. Um, do you consider yourself to be a social enterprise? And if not, why not? But if you do, do you aspire to sort of demonstrate any leadership in the area? Thank you. Hello, Jackie Salon, JSA London. Um, as a mutual organization, as a mutual organization, do you look for any particular skills in your employees that might differ from your competitors, other large retailers? So, so if, we, if we start with, with your, 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 your question, uh, I mean, my answer to it is that absolutely I think that a mutual or a co-owned enterprise has relevance in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in somewhere like Tottenham. It is, it is the case that, you know, that we will have more, um, our customer base will, be, will tend towards being a more affluent customer base, but it's not the case that they're exclusively so. 
And I think, for example, in John Lewis, um, you know, I don't know why I've got this figure in my head, but 95% of the people who live in, within 20 minutes of Peterborough Town Centre shop in John Lewis in Peterborough in a year. So, and yeah, that's a pretty broad range of people. Uh, so it has a very, very broad appeal. Um, Waitrose, um, actually, you know, one of the things we're really trying to do very hard at the moment is to extend the appeal of Waitrose and to get more customers in. And you know, one of the key, key things we have to do there is convince people that it is actually not as expensive as a lot of people think it is to shop in Waitrose, which is why an awful lot of effort's gone into the, the marketing uh, and, and indeed money has gone into investment uh, in, in pricing to, to, to accomplish that. And we've got 300,000 people, more people shopping in Waitrose now than there were a year ago. So you know, those are all the sort of things that we're trying to do. Um, you know, so I, I don't see any, any you know, quite exactly within Tottenham or where that fits is, is probably a, a, a separate decision. But there's nothing in principle that, does, that means we wouldn't want to be there, um, provided the catchment's right. But I mean, I wouldn't I'd be honest with you and say that if the, if the mix isn't quite right for us, then yes, we might not go there. Your point, though, about, about a, an employee-owned business, you know, a, a model like ours, I think that goes across... Pretty, I mean, can be applied in a lot of different areas, and um, you know, maybe I can sort of illustrate that by answering your question about social enterprise and, and uh, our responsibilities there. Um, you know, we, I, I, I struggle with this word social enterprise because it's sort of, it, it, it sort of, it, always what I want to ask is what does it mean? Um, and 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 I think there's a sort of slight tendency to think that it's sort of somehow about not pro- not for profit. Yeah, you know, we make profits, and we're absolutely a profit-making organisation, and unashamedly so. But we do so with a real social, with a real consciousness of, our, of, of the, the, the social purpose of the partnership. You know, our, our ultimate purpose, and these are, exact, are the exact words, is, is the happiness of our members through their worthwhile uh, and satisfying employment in a successful business. And those are all very, very important words. But you know, there's a very much a recognition of the social purpose and value of work. The fact that people gain a lot of self-esteem, uh, they actually get life chances and opportunities, they can improve their, their, their standard of living, all sorts of things, and indeed they can contribute a lot to the societies and communities they're in through being members, responsible members of those. So we absolutely uh, feel that we have a big responsibility there. In terms of um, how do we then exercise that outside the partnership, I mean, I, you know, the first thing I'd say is that while I'm passionate about the partnership, I'm not a zealot for it. Um, in the sense that you know, actually what works for us doesn't necessarily work for everybody else. Uh, and you know, we've been at this for 80 years and we're still working really hard at it. And it's hard to make it work. So it's not an easy choice. And organisations are like that. To make them really successful long term, you have to work at it all the time. There's never such a thing as a universally good or a universally bad culture. That's always a mixture of the two. But what we have been doing is, is working with government recently around these um, trying to bring uh, employee ownership into public services. Uh, we are mentoring a Pathfinder project in Swindon, which is um, a, a community care uh, team, um, which has been fascinating for our people and I think you know, help useful for them. Uh, and we're also working at a more senior level with the task force that the Cabinet Office has set up, which is, um, which is really looking at some of the big obstacles, because I think there is a, there's a big opportunity to bring more social enterprise type thinking to more places, including the delivery of public services. But we shouldn't kid ourselves, there's some big, big challenges to make it widespread and make it successful. And there's always a danger that people think, ah, John Lewis this, John Lewis that. And that's on the one hand flattering and good news that people are interested. On the other hand, it's deeply concerning because it sort of is, is a huge simplification and almost certainly an excess of expectation which probably won't be fulfilled. So we're trying to balance those things. So difficult to that point, you know, clearly you had a fast-growing dot-com, if you like, vaguely in in your orbit, 
yeah. in the competition. Um, so the, yeah, the kind of thing I've got, I, I, I was quite deeply involved with this actually. So <laughs> yeah, happy to talk about that. Um, yeah, what um, very straightforwardly, no, no regrets whatsoever. We no longer have any shareholding in Ocado, um, so we have sold all our shareholding down. It went into our pension fund, and they uh, they have now uh, moved to uh, a pure. We now are purely a supply and branding relationship with Ocado. But um, the thinking behind this was was simply that we could see that a lot of our customers wanted to shop online. We had very few shops in London at the time. And a lot of those customers wanted to shop online, and this was a way of actually getting our product to those customers and taking a market share uh, that was far greater than we could have achieved had we done this on our own. So it was quite a commercial decision in some respects. Um, it was taken with a very much a, a, an understanding of that, but also in, um, uh, in talking to Ocado in the very earliest days, um, we talked about not that they were going to be co-owned, because that wasn't really an option at that stage, but the importance of engaging and treating their people well was not something that was a nice thing to do. It was a better way to work. And actually, you would have better customer service if you do it. And you know, actually, they put a lot of effort into that. Um, and indeed, they, they introduced some forums and some of these elected, elected bodies at the very earliest stage, um, I, you know, partly because I think they, they understood that. Going forward now, you know, we've got a position where we've got, you know, commercially, we've got about a 20% market share of the online market, including Ocado, the, the trade we do with Ocado, versus Waitress has about a 5% market share of the grocery sector. So it's, you know, it's four times what we, we have in our physical space. We're now growing our own business, uh, and we'll do that steadily, and the market's very big, so there'll be plenty of room for both. Um, is it confusing for some customers? Possibly, but, uh, you know, that's... It's, it's not been impossibly so because essentially you're shopping with one or the other and you can make a choice and you know, we're not going to tell you which one to, to use. Clearly now I would prefer that you used Waitrose but you know, Ocado equally would say they would want you to, to use Ocado and they do a fantastic job so you know, they're very, very good at what I they do. I had a mind blank about the last question. The, the, the last question. Oh, it was about employees, whether running a mutual organisation is required. Yeah. yeah, so we have, um, we certainly do um, things differently. So, and probably two levels to answer that question. First of all, when we're recruiting people for our shops or for, you know, for non management partners joining the partnership, you know, if we open a new shop, um, you know, we will do, um, it's a bit, a bit of a cliche, but we will do a lot of recruiting on attitude. You know, what we want is people who are good team workers, who are self starting. Um, who want to sort of view their role not just as carrying out tasks but actually owning a job and they sort of they're attitudinally they're of that mindset um, and um, and then we can train them with all the skills they need but that's that's very very important and we put I don't think we did that very well previously but we've put a lot of effort into that um, in the last few years and and I think you know successfully so um, at a more senior level, um, you know, it does require a different leadership style. It does require a different approach um, to what typically might be nurtured and developed in other organizations. And, and essentially, it comes back to what I was saying about you're managing. You have a clear leadership role. And we're, make no bones about it, you can't run an organization like ours by committee. You know, we have managers are there to manage. They're there to make decisions and to lead. Um, but they're there to do it in the knowledge that they're accountable to the people they work with. And so I mentioned the, the council that I go to uh, four times a year and have be a, I'm accountable to them. Every single shop has a similar elected body. Obviously, it's a lot smaller, it's a lot less formal, but the branch manager of a Waitrose shop will have an elected body of partners and you know, that he or she will spend time with them and they'll talk about performance and what's gone on. We also give a lot of information to people. So we have a survey, a you know, staff survey. Nothing unusual in that. Probably a lot of the people you work for have got staff, staff surveys too. 
The difference is that we share all the results with everybody. And so there's no place to hide. You can't just say as the management, oh, I'm going to look at this and sort of tell people about it in a selective way. It's all out there. And then you've got these forums where you're going to get asked, if, you're, if you're, you know, my manager cares about me as a person who has gone down 10 points year on year, you know, that's going to be discussed for sure in a, quite a public forum in, uh, in that elected group. And that makes a big difference to the style of management and leadership that's required in the partnership. And therefore, when we're recruiting, if we're recruiting at mid, mid or senior level, we, we really try to understand whether we can get people who've got the right attitude like that. And just quickly, to give you a plug, the things you were saying about training, you're, you're interacting or helping the government with, it sounds like you're a little bit worried about the lack of skills. You're not getting many of the, you're not getting the essentially sort of John Lewis ready Skills um, no, I would well no, um, n- no, I wouldn't say that actually. I mean, I think we we've um, we're, we're fortunate that when we do get a lot of applications, and so we we do sift very very carefully. Um, and um, overall, I would say we're recruiting successfully. I think there's a whole there's a whole other discussion about skills that we could have. We probably haven't haven't got time for. Um, but um, you know, I think the skills agenda is a very very important one. Um, it's something I'm involved in with an, another hat on. And I suppose fundamentally, um, yeah, what's required there is, uh, I think, a, a change in, the, in, in attitudes from one where skills were seen a bit as a sort of government responsibility and a, almost a, a slightly an individual responsibility to being a situation where businesses take more responsibility for investment in skills. And they recognize that when you invest in somebody with the skills, you know, you're actually taking a good business decision. That's not to say there aren't organizations that do that brilliantly. There are but there aren't enough of them, uh, and we need to see you know, more and greater investment in skills to raise the whole capability level of the country um, as a part of uh, sustaining a, a, an economic recovery. Great. Is that a John Lewis tie? Um, <laughs> it's rather... Anyway, <laughs> anyway listen, um, I, my skills as a chair are appalling because I'm only about 15 minutes over. Apologies to everybody. Uh, but massive thank you to Charlie. Um, bad chair, very good businessman. Thank you.